0: So I'm not going to be preaching from Romans, as Pastor uh, Hoffmeyer mentioned. There were some distractions over the weekend that led me in another direction. So let's begin with prayer, and then we can um, find that passage. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus Christ, your Son, and for your amazing love that sent him into this world to save sinners Such as we are. Thank you, we bless you, and we ask that even in this hour, through the preaching of the word, you administer some of the grace and goodness and mercy to your people through your Son, the Lord Jesus, and even open the eyes and hearts of unbelievers through the preaching of your word this morning for the glory of your Son and the good of their souls. And we ask it all in Christ's blessed name. Amen. Well, we associate certain people in the Bible with certain outstanding characteristics or circumstances in their lives. For example, if I ask you who is the wisest man in the Bible other than Jesus Christ himself, most of you would immediately answer well that would be the king solomon son of david if i said who is the strongest man physically in the bible you would many of you would quickly answer well that would be the judge of israel samson and if i said who was stated to be the meekest man on the face of the earth in his days you would say well that is moses And perhaps if I asked, who is the man in the Bible, again, apart from our Savior Jesus Christ, who endured the greatest suffering, many of you would quickly respond, Job. And it's Job that I want us to consider today, so let's take our Bibles and turn to Job chapter 1. I heard many years ago about a man, I think it was in the Puritan era, who preached a series of expository sermons on the book of Job, and that series went on and on for years. And if I remember right, the account I heard was that he began with a congregation of 800 people, and he finished with a congregation of eight. I don't know if just they were all young when he started and they all got old, and the Lord never added to the church, or if he just plain old wore them out. But if I expose myself to any complaint regarding my treatment of the book of Job this morning, it will not be that it is too thorough and in-depth and drawn out, uh, but that it is too quick and sketchy and superficial. So be it. I did preach a series uh, through Job back in when I was in Minneapolis, and having that puritan preacher in my mind, I kept it to 13 messages. But this is just a one-off on Job. And let's begin just with a recap of the story of the life of Job and what we have in the book of Job. It was sometime around the days of the patriarch Abraham, that's what biblical scholars tell us, that there lived a man named Job in a land called Uz. And he was a very wealthy man and likely a ruler. He was also a godly man. Scripture tells us right here in Job chapter 1 that he was the godliest man of his time. Look at verse 8 for that statement. It says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth. Well, what was, what was so unique about him? Was it his wealth? Was it something else? Here's what it is. A blameless man and upright, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Job was the godliest man of his day. Job chapters 1 and 2 record how Satan one day came and argued with God that the only reason Job served God as faithfully as he did was because of what he could get from God. Job was a very wealthy man. And Satan argued that if you take you say Job's possessions away from him, Job will curse you and turn his back on you. So God accepted the challenge and he permitted Satan to afflict his servant Job by destroying his property, his animals, and even his children. You can read all of that in chapter 1. And finally, the Lord even let the devil afflict Job's own body with some kind of terrible skin disease. So Job went from being a wealthy, respected, honorable man to a poor, pitiable sufferer who was laughed at and taunted by young men who spit in his face. Listen to the words of Job from chapter 30 and verse 1. He says, but now they mock at me. Men younger than I, whose fathers I disdained to put with the dogs of my flock. Talk about a story of riches to rags. Job is that story. Maybe more than any other story in the history of mankind. This man Job knew something about suffering. And so today, I want to draw some lessons about suffering from the life of Job and the book of Job. As I thought about what sermon I would preach from um, years in the past before I came to pastor here, this one caught my attention and I thought, you know, there's never a shortage of suffering among God's people wherever they are. Um, but I thought about our life and our congregation at this point in time, and I thought this lesson might be peculiarly fitting for us. So the first lesson I want to bring, and I have seven total. I'll keep my eye on the clock because um, we'll see how far far I get today. I, I expect one message, and that's what I'll aim for. But the first thing is that we can learn from Job about suffering is that good people suffer. And that's almost a cliche among many Christians. We know that good people suffer. I remember hearing about a book that came out decades ago, and it was, I think this was the title of it When Bad Things Happen to Good People. In other words, we understand bad things do happen to good people, and if we understand what the Bible teaches about God, God is the one who brings those bad things into their lives. He does it for good purposes, as we're going to see, but that's reality. The book of Job certainly teaches this lesson. Psalm 34 verse 19 states this, many are the afflictions of the righteous you don't have to go any farther than that one half verse of the bible to understand that this is what the bible says it goes on to say after saying many are the afflictions of the righteous but the lord delivers him out of them all now i'll make this comment sometimes in this life but ultimately always in the end he will The Bible is very clear about this, that good people suffer. Think of Jesus' own statement in the New Testament, John 16, 33, in uh, what we call his farewell discourse or the upper room discourse. He said, in this world, speaking to his apostles, you have tribulation. And the apostle Paul stated somewhere in the book of Acts that... um, Uh, It is through many afflictions, I think it's Acts 14, that we, God's people, must enter the kingdom of God. Job definitely suffered greatly. And he was definitely a good man. It states in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Job, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. It states that at the outset. It states it again in verse 8, as I mentioned. So good people suffer. Just two related observations before we move on at this point. The first is this, that there is no direct correlation. We need to get this in our minds There is no direct correlation between godliness and freedom from suffering. Many people think that if someone is godlier, he will not suffer as much as others. And the godlier he is, the less he will suffer. That is the teaching of a lot of people. That is not the teaching of of the bible that was the theology of job's friends if you know the book of job they came to comfort him ostensibly but after the first week in which they did give him a good amount of comfort i presume because they kept their mouths shut once they started opening their mouths they were far from comforting job why because They spoke their main theology about suffering. If you're good, Job, reading between the lines, like us, you won't suffer such tragedies. But if you're sinful, this is what you're going to experience. Now, fess up. That was their theology. That was the theology of the Jews, of Jesus day think of luke 13 where someone mentioned this from this pulpit a few days uh, maybe a week ago i think it might have been pastor carlson about luke 13 and how um those people that came up to jesus to say say to jesus what do you think about those galileans whose blood Pilate mixed with their sacrifices in other words they were just bringing sacrifices to god they were just worshiping and Pilate cut them down Their implication was those Galileans, oh, by the way, you're a Galilean, Jesus, was that they must have done something very wicked to have a terrible end like that to their lives. And Jesus said, you think they're more guilty than other sinners? And then he said to them, if you don't repent of your sins, you will likewise perish. In other words, under the wrath of God that you think they were perishing under. That was the theology of many of the Jews in Jesus' day. Even the apostles. Remember John 9, when there was that blind man in Jerusalem, and their first question to Jesus about the blind man was, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus had to correct them. It was not for the sin either of himself or his parents. Sadly, even too many Christians in our day and age who have Bibles, including the New Testament, and should no better think that way. They think it about others, and sadly, they think it about themselves all too often. Sometimes it's a reason people struggle with assurance, because they're not convinced of this first point I'm making, that good people suffer christians suffer godly people suffer even greatly paul said think of the apostle paul he wanted to know christ he said and the power of his resurrection philippians 3 and the fellowship of his sufferings. that's what he wanted in his life as a very godly man and an apostle that he might be conformed to jesus death So that's the first observation. There's no direct correlation between godliness and freedom from suffering. Second, there is no exemption from suffering, even for Christians. Study the lives of very godly people. Study the life of Christ in the Bible. Study the lives of the prophets. Study the life of the apostles and especially of Paul study the lives of christians like martin luther calvin it's amazing the sufferings some of these godly saints have gone through good people suffer that's number one a second lesson is this god has a purpose when his people suffer even though that purpose may not be known to them god knows the purpose and he has a purpose we may ask in the midst of our suffering It's not a bad question. It depends what your attitude is when you ask it. Lord, what are you doing? What are you doing to me? Why is this happening? I mean, you may believe that God causes godly people to suffer, but you might have thought he would never do it in this way, would he? But he does. We know that God is always doing something right, and wise when we suffer. And he's always doing something, always, that is good for us. Just think of a few of God's purposes in Job's suffering. And if it's true for Job's suffering, it's true for us. What were some of his purposes in Job's suffering? Well, first of all, that he might glorify his name. We do always know That whatever God is doing, he's doing it to glorify his name. Everything God does will always serve to bring glory to his name. Even if you doubt it at times, and even if you can't see it, and can't imagine that you will will ever see it, it's true. So I just state that and pass on. One of his purposes is to glorify his name. That's always the case. Another purpose that's evident in the book of Job is to vindicate his servant Job. How did the book start? With a challenge to Job's integrity. He's not really a godly man. He looks like it, but he's just in it for the money. That's basically Satan's argument. So God does what he does in the following chapters, all 42 of them, in part, to vindicate his servant. But lives were lost here, you might say. God does what he does for his purposes, and he is the sovereign God who may do what he does. And remember, I said he always does what is right and wise and good. You have to look at the big picture and the long run. God always does that. God was vindicating his servant Job. Job didn't feel that way. Job would not have imagined that till the end. But brethren, may God give us that perspective when we suffer. In other words, may he help us to see ourselves and what happens to us, to see our lives all as part of of God's war that he is waging against the powers of darkness. God is on your side if you're a Christian. Even when it seems that he's against you, he's not against you. He is for you if you are his child. And part of what he's doing is vindicating you by what he brings you through. And the third thing, of course, is that he does it to, did it to sanctify Job, and same with our trials. He does them. He brings them upon us to sanctify us. We had those statements in chapter 1, verse 1. In chapter 1, verse 8, that he was a blameless and upright man. He feared God and he shunned evil. And he was more outstanding than that than anyone else on the face of the earth. That's God's testimony about Job. But let's flip back to chapter 38 for a moment. We're getting down toward the end of the book. And Job has gone through all these uh, discussions and debates with his friends. And finally, God breaks in upon the scene. And after Job's three friends and the young man Elihu or Elihu have stated their peace, God comes and God speaks. And notice how he starts. It says Then the Lord answered Job. Out of the whirlwind and said, "Who is this who who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me." And God was not speaking about the three friends, and He was not speaking about the young man Elihu. He was speaking about Job as the one who darkened counsel with his words and who uh, spoke words without knowledge. Job had a lot to learn. Maybe he knew more about God than anyone else on the face of the earth, but he had a lot he didn't know. He had a lot yet to learn, and he didn't think so. God was sanctifying Job. Look at chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. It says, Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Who was he talking to? Job. Notice verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. And then likewise, you have it in verse, uh, chapter 42, the last chapter. And we see starting in verse 1, that Job answers the Lord. Let me just drop down. Uh, He says in verse 3, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful me for me which I did not know. And in verse 6, he says, well, let's read 5 and 6. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. In other words, I do know you, O Lord, but not in the way I should, in the way I needed to. But now he says, but now my eye sees you. In other words, now I understand you much, much better Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. God was sanctifying Job through everything he brought him through. Be aware of the reality, brethren, when you go through trials. Sometimes we're immediately tempted to say, Satan is buffeting me. I'm not disagreeing with you. Just don't look at it ever as an either-or proposition when you suffer. Be aware of the reality that the same thing, the same difficult circumstance in your life can be both, at the same time, the temptation of Satan, those wiles of the devil, the fiery darts of the devil, and the testing of God. Let's go over to James for a moment. James chapter 1 and verses 13 and 14 for a moment. We just have to do this briefly, but it's worth our time. James 1 verses 13 and 14. James says, Let no one say that when when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted to evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So you're tempted to sin. That's the focus here. Tempted to sin. It's not God tempting you. That's what what, uh, uh, James is saying. It's not God. Chalk it up to one of three things, or a combination of them. The world... The flesh and the devil. Yes, blame the devil on your temptation. Blame the world. I mean, sometimes people come up to you and they just say, let's do this. And it wasn't in your mind. That was his idea. Now you're tempted. So blame the devil. Blame the world. And the flesh. Don't forget that. Because that's what makes you susceptible to every temptation to sin. But it's not God who in any way is pushing you to sin. But remember what I said. The afflictions that come upon you can be both the temptation of Satan and the testing of God. The word test and the word tempt are both legitimate translations for the Greek word for tempt. And so go back to verses 2 through 4 of James chapter 1. So James says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Legitimate translation? Temptations. Knowing that the testing, legitimate translation, tempting of your faith produces patience. Who's doing that? God is. Verse 4, But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing it's the work of god so verse 12 says blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been proved or tested he will receive the crown of life which the lord has promised to those who love him so remember that about god's purposes yes satan may be trying to push you to sin that's what he was trying to do with job that's what it was all about from his perspective What was it about from God's perspective to vindicate Job and to sanctify Job, to make him a better man? So God has a purpose when his people suffer. Good people suffer. Third, trust in God when you are suffering. Trust in God when you are suffering. There is never any reason, never any reason not to trust god including when you are suffering you ought to trust god even more when you're suffering but you should always trust him god is always righteous he is always holy and true and wise and almighty and good period so therefore a couple of subheadings under this point i have two of them one trust him as opposed to having suspicion toward him or any evil thoughts toward him. He is, when he brings you into a time of affliction, if you're a Christian, he is not trying to bring you down. Now maybe he is in the sense of humble you like he did with Job. But why did he want to humble Job? That he might exalt him and better him. He's not jeopardizing your soul when he brings you into a trial. God would not have permitted this testing of Job if a good outcome were not absolutely certain. And that's true for you as a Christian as well. If you are a Christian and God has brought you into suffering, and remember, if you are in a time of suffering, God has brought you into it, it's true then for you that God is for you, and you should just trust in him. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you. No trial has overtaken you, except such as is common to man. Other people have experienced it. Other people have experience, are experiencing virtually the same thing right now somewhere in this world. Other Christians will continue to experience what you're experiencing till Jesus comes again. No temptation has overtaken you such as is common to man, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will always make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So trust in God when you are suffering instead of being suspicious him and then the second thing under this point of trusting god when you're suffering trust in in him as opposed to being proud when you are tempted and you don't like it or prideful job was complaining about god's treatment of him that's a large section of the book of job and a large portion of job's speeches In effect, he was lecturing God. We saw that in one of those um, statements there at the end of Job. Let me me go back to it. It caught my eye. Um, Job. So it must be Job 38. Let me look at that. is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge job 42 oh here in verse 3 of job 42 therefore i have uttered what i did not understand things too wonderful for me in other words he's acknowledging he said things about god that he should not have said and we can trace it all throughout the book. You should trust in God and not think you know better than God. Uh, I had a number of passages I was going to take the time to turn you to. Maybe I can do it in a, another setting sometime and uh, open up more on the book of Job. But Job had this problem, basically. And you can, you can, you can look. I'll give you a couple of texts if you want to look at them later. Um, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, and verse 11. Chapter 6, verses 2 through 4. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 3 and 15 to 17. If you get beyond that, text me or email me and I'll send you some more. But my, but my point here is this. I'm a bit negative about Job at this point, and I And I, I, um, I think there's good reason to be. I remember one commentator when I was preaching through Job. He almost justified everything that came out of Job's mouth. He was trying to make a point that... When a Christian is going through suffering, it's legitimate for him to say, "Why, Lord?" And I agree with that. But he was so concerned to make that point and to keep harping on that point, he just kind of, you know, glossed over a lot of sinful speech coming out of Job's mouth. I can't do that with a good conscience. Job understood that God was holy. Job understood that God was just. And Job knew also what God knew about him. That Job himself was a righteous man. He feared God and he shunned evil more than any other man on the face of the earth. So Job thought, so why is this happening? And he complained about it. And he got quite bitter in his complaints. At a number of points, in fact, let me just dip in for one of these passages here. Let's try um, uh, chapter 23, verses 1 through 5. Chapter 23, verses 1 through 5. His friends get done speaking again. Eliphaz was the last speaker. Then Job answered and said, Even today my complaint is bitter. My hand is listless because of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. In other words, God is holy. God is righteous. God must be off somewhere, not watching what's going on because here's a perfectly righteous man suffering terribly. If God would just wake up, If God would just listen, if God would just let me present my case to him, he'd bring me out of this in a heartbeat. Job knew a lot of things about God that most people didn't know. He believed them with all his heart, but he didn't know all that he needed to know. He didn't know God was near. He didn't know God lets his own people suffer at times, even including the best of them. So Job complained about God's treatment of him. In effect, he was lecturing God in this book. My point is simply this. Don't be prideful when you suffer and lecture God. You wouldn't come out and do it, maybe like Job, but you're thinking it in your mind. This should not be happening to the kind of Christian that I am. How could this be? This should not be happening to me. Don't lecture God about your suffering, about His Word and what it says, about the way things are in the world or in your life. Follow our Savior's example. 1 Peter 2.23 When He suffered, He did not threaten, but committed Himself to Him who judges righteously. That's what He demonstrated that's what scripture tells you and me to imitate whether we can understand what god is doing or not the fourth thing is this persevere through suffering persevere through suffering as i I think about the years of my pilgrimage in the christian faith i I don't know if there's something that's better to emphasize. Persevere through suffering. If you persevere through suffering, it always comes out well in the end. Period. In parentheses, sometimes in this life, and it's great when that happens, always in the end. So press on faithfully. And now, having said what I said about Job in a more negative way, note that Job did persevere through suffering. He did. The issue was not whether Job would sin. Satan didn't say, if you let me afflict him in these ways, he's going to sin. Job was already a sinner. There was no shortage of sin in his life already. That wasn't the issue. The issue was whether he would continue to be faithful to God and to trust in God and hold on to Him. And that Job did. Let's see if we can just quickly um, notice that in the text here. Go to chapter 1 and verse 11. We have Satan's words. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that Job has, and he will surely curse you to your face. In other words, he'll be done with you. If the pot dries up, Job will be gone in a moment. And then in verse 20 to 22 of Job 1, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground, and what did he do? He worshiped. And he said, Naked came I, I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. In chapter 2, likewise, chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, Then the Lord said to Satan, after the first round of testing, "'Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause.' So Satan answered the Lord and said, "'Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh.' And he will surely curse you to your face. And then God gave him permission, you remember, to put forth his hand and afflict Job. And he afflicted him with that terrible disease, left sores on his skin. And we have that terrible picture of Job sitting there, scraping his sores with potsherds, pieces of broken clay, vessels. But look at verses 9 and 10 of the chapter. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Though he sinned, he did not apostatize. He did not turn away from God. And that was the challenge Satan gave. And Job never did that. He never did that. He never forsook God. He had many great statements of faith though he slay me, yet I will trust in him, and Job did. He persevered through suffering. Let's just look again at James and get the biblical judgment on Job. James 5:11. James 5 and verse 11. He's just brought in here at this one point as an encouragement to the people of God that James wrote to, who he knew were suffering. And we read in verse 11, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have seen... Excuse me. You have seen... You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful so the perseverance that's a good um uh translation of the of the greek word there perseverance that's a better translation than patience in the days of the king james bible patience and perseverance were synonyms now they're a little bit different perseverance means somebody keeps pressing on and not giving up that job did i don't like that phrase um Job the patient, in terms of meaning what patience means nowadays, it means quieter and calmer. Job? eh? I don't think so anyway. But you can school me and, and tell me better if you think so. But this is, this is what God calls us to do, brethren, when we suffer. Knowing... That the testing of our faith produces patience. Again, it's that word perseverance or endurance. Fifth, do not be, and this follows from what we just said. It's similar to things I've been saying, but let me just state it straight out. Do not be discontented and murmur when you suffer. That was one of Job's sins, his murmuring, his impatience with God. Chapter 5, verse 11 says, points us to the perseverance of Job. He never gave up. Though he slay me, I will trust in him. God never said Job stopped trusting in him. God did say he uttered a lot of foolish statements about him, which he shouldn't have. And he was teaching Job not to do that. We saw some of the examples. Or I showed you one of the examples already. It makes me think of that example of, we won't take the time to turn there, but the psalmist Asaph in Psalm 73. You look at the first couple of verses there. And, and Asaph, he had a, similar, a situation very similar to Job. They both thought that if, if, if somebody's righteous, God's going to bless them outwardly. And if someone's ungodly, then God will curse them outwardly. And so Job ran into this, problem and asaph ran into the same problem and asaph says lord i've been serving you but as i looked at my situation i i noticed i am a godly man and i'm suffering and i'm looking around at all these ungodly men and they're living the high life they're enjoying life they're wealthy they they have a life of ease why is this happening it shouldn't Job and Asaph were like boiling pots of water. They were like boiling pots on the inside. And whenever the cover popped up, steam came out. The steam was complaint against God. Brethren, our goal in the Christian life should be that to the degree that we're able with God's help and His grace, we should be like room temperature water. Unless the subject is Christian zeal, then we should be boiling hot. But listen to Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So that's the fifth thing. Do not be discontented and murmur when you suffer. Sixth, Take heart from Job's experience in your suffering. Take heart from Job's experience. That's the point of James 5.11. You have heard the perseverance of Job and seen the end. And I think the best way to understand that is the, the end brought about by the Lord. He had all the wealth back again, but double, and double the children because he had a whole new set of them. If you read Job 42... So he says, you've heard of the perseverance of the Lord, excuse me, of Job, and seen the end brought about by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful." merciful. Brethren, we have a great advantage that Job didn't have. We have far greater revelation than Job had. We have the whole Old Testament. We have the whole New Testament, including the Bible's account about Job himself so let's live like that we should say that's right when someone quotes a scripture to you like that in the midst of your trial even you should say that's right and god is the same yesterday and today and forever instead of well but well but to use the um phrase of the puritan thomas brooks uh, characterizing or paraphrasing christians when they suffer no trials like my trials no problems like my problems don't be like that act like someone who has the book of job in hand and who is a christian saint seventh and finally that follows from what i just said aim To outstrip Job, therefore, in your godly conduct when you suffer. We should hope, brethren, not just to imitate Job, but to surpass him in our godliness and perseverance. On the one side, think of it this way. Let's all be honest. However terribly we suffer... Job's suffering was greater. Job's suffering does not measure up to Christ's. Nobody's does. Nobody's ever will. It's hard to imagine other people whose suffering will outstrip Job's. So there's the one side of the picture. Think of it that way. People have suffered far greater pains than I have. Far greater pains than I am right now. Am I saying it's not difficult? Absolutely not. I'm just saying, though, that my theology is that's the Christian life. That's on the one side. Job's suffering was greater than yours, so you you should be able just for that reason, to outstrip him. But here's the other side of it, and this is the, the real strongest argument that you should aim to outstrip Job in your suffering. I mentioned it already. You have far greater revelation than Job. If he was a contemporary of Abraham, how many books of the Bible were written? How many chapters How many single words of the Bible were written yet? Zero. And then, when has God seen fit to put you on the face of this earth? After the coming, and the suffering, and the dying, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's brought you to believe in him if you're a Christian. So would you repeat that again? Why should I be expected to outstrip Job in godly suffering? If that really is a question. I quote a lot because I love it because I think it summarizes the teaching of the Bible on this point. Our confession in the chapter on Christian liberty, the first paragraph says that we as believers in the new covenant have fuller communications of the free spirit of God than believers under the law did ordinarily partake of. Job had greater communications of God's spirit than most people in his day. But brethren, remember, when we come to the end of the Old Testament, Jesus says John the Baptist was the greatest of all the Old Testament saints. But he says that everyone in the kingdom of God, in other words, a new covenant believer, is greater than John the Baptist. And in part because of this reason, the way the Spirit of God has been poured out. So there's seven lessons from Job about suffering that I trust will be helpful to us. Let me just close with a word I've been addressing Christians and saying these are the benefits you have and the comforts you have if you're going through suffering in your life. How many of these benefits come to unbelievers? None. So you should want these benefits if you're not a Christian. I cannot tell you how great it is to have these benefits as a Christian when I go through suffering in my life. I mean, in the flesh, do I hate suffering? Yes. Like Job. But God helping me, I can say, it's going to come anyway. Lord, better have it come with your timing and your governing all the circumstances than mine and you've taken me through it before you'll take me through it again and when you've taken me through it in the past i've ended up learning more about you and loving you more and knowing your love for me more see christians are not guaranteed a life with no suffering far from it and you might say to that if you're not a believer well why be a christian then Just a few quick answers. Because Christians have God to suffer with them. Isaiah 63, 9, and all their affliction, talking about His people in the Old Testament, He was afflicted. And in His love and in His pity, He bore them and carried them. And that is a great thing. Another thing is this. They have Christ to suffer for them. And Christ has already suffered for his people, and he will not need to suffer again. But because he suffered, though when you suffer, it might seem, if you're a Christian, like God has forsaken you. He hasn't. But because Christ suffered, he never will leave you, and he never will forsake you, and that is guaranteed. And a third reason why to be a Christian is this. Because Christians have heaven to gain after this life is over. So that the Apostle Paul said in the book of Romans, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us Christians in the last day. And that includes you if you're a child of God. But if you're not a child of God, that's why you don't have these blessings. And you would never stand up here And say the things I'm saying today about the worst sufferings you've ever gone through in your life. But I'm saying that if you take Jesus Christ as your Savior, as God's people here have done, you will be able to say that one day. You will be able to say it. In fact, I know you will say it if you take Christ as your Savior. But as it stands right now, you have to think about a text like this. Jesus said, in the Sermon on the Mount, woe to you who are rich. In other words, you might not have suffering in this life. He said, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. You might say, I'm glad I'm not a Christian, because I wouldn't have the money I have, and I wouldn't have some of the fun experiences I've had. But Jesus said, woe to you, if that's your state, because you have received your consolation. In other words... The good things you've had in this life, those will be the best things you ever, ever enjoy. And those are pretty poor compared to the glories of heaven and the the riches that God's people will experience there in Jesus Christ. Pretty poor. And it'll be a pretty sad end as well. But you can have, even if you're an unbeliever, Jesus Christ as your Savior and God as your helper and heaven as your hope. But you must humble yourself and let go of your vice grip on the pleasures of this life and repent of your sins and believe in God's Son, Jesus Christ who is the only one who can save you. May God help you to do that today. That is our prayer for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and ask that you would take your word and write it on the heart of everyone here. Thank you for the deep and rich comforts that you provide to your people in the midst of their afflictions. These great gospel truths we've heard today Help us to know more and more of Your presence and the power of Your Spirit, even in our darkest times in this world. We pray as well that You would open the hearts and the eyes of those who don't know You sitting here today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.